It is Tuesday, August the 4th, and welcome back to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns in this time of pandemic. I am Bill Whalen, a research fellow here at the Hoover Institution and the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow in Journalism. It's my great honor today to moderate a conversation. Now, those of you who've been watching Goodfellows, you know our format, but for those of you first time viewers, I'm gonna clue you in as what you're about to see. This is a conversation featuring two, three, sometimes four Hoover Fellows, Hoover Senior Fellows, we like to call them the good fellows with all due respect to Mr. Scorsese. Uh, these are our Hoover fellows offering their unique insights into what may lie ahead in these complicated times. Now let's meet the good fellows, beginning with John Cochran. He's an economist in the Hoover Institution's uh, Rosemary and Jack Anderson Senior Fellow. John's also the author of the Grumpy Economist blog and the voice behind the Grumpy Economist podcast, which are a must read and must listen in these complicated times. Few people explain things as well as my friend John Cochran. John, how is it? How goes things today? Doing great, thank you. Okay, we must comment on the shirt. I understand there's a little uh, disagreement in the household of Cochrane over this shirt. There was a little sartorial misunderstanding, yes, but uh, not, uh, this is as stylish as we're going to get today. It's kind of a French maritime look to it, if I might might say, but it looks good. Don Delir, but anyway, go ahead. Looks good on you, John. Our second good fellow is Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster, the Hoover Institution's Fawada Michelle Ajami Senior Fellow. General McMaster served his country of honor and distinction for the better part of 35 years, his last tour of duty being that of National Security Advisor to the President of the United States. H.R., we missed you last week. I missed you, I missed you too, Bill. Good okay, to see well, everybody. I was going to ask you on your honor as an officer and a gentleman, did you really miss not being on the show last week? Because you had work to do, didn't you? <laughs> I had a little bit of work to do, but, but I did miss you guys. Okay, well, good to have you back, HR. Now, ordinarily, our third good fellow is the redoubtable Neil Ferguson, a historian and author, as well as the Hoover Institution's Milbank Family Senior Fellow. It's Neil's turn to take a week off this week, so he's somewhere out in the wilderness chopping wood, wrestling bears, or I think actually more to the point, finishing a book that he's crashing on right now. So filling in for Neil this week in his considerable shoes is our friend Yuval Levin. Yuval Levin is the Director of Social, Cultural, and Constitutional Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. He is also the author of A Time to Build, From Family and Community to Congress and the Campus, How Recommitting to Our Institutions Can Revive the American Dream. Now, that book was published in January, so you can get it as soon as this show ends. Yuval, welcome to Goodfellows. Thanks very much for having me. It's great to be with you. Okay, I've got to ask you, you're in Washington, D.C., or just outside of the district. You had a windstorm. Did the windstorm come and take away the government like the Wizard of Oz and deliver us to a better time? <laughs> it seems to still be here, so I think the work is yet before us. All right, so the federal government's still with us for now. Okay, so Yuval, I'd like you to begin this conversation. We want to talk today about institutional confidence or the lack thereof in America. I'd like to begin with an op-ed that you wrote for the New York Times, the date January 18th, 2020. So this is two months before society goes into lockdown, almost seven months from this conversation. The headline of that, Yuval, was, did Americans lose faith in everything? I'd like to read you a passage, then I'd like to get your comments on how it would apply to today. Here's what you wrote in January for the New York Times, quote, if American life is a big open space, it is not a space filled with individuals. It is a space filled with structures of social life, with institutions. And if we are too often failing to foster belonging, legitimacy, and trust, what we are confronting is a failure of institutions. You added, quote, the social crisis is followed upon a collapse in institutions, public, private, civic, and political, but we have not given enough thought to just what that loss of confidence entails and why it's happening. Yuval, you wrote that again two months before society went into the lockdown. If you had to write that again for the New York Times now, what would you say about institutions? The same as in January, in any way better or in any way worse? 
Well, thank you. That, um, that op-ed was a, a kind of summary of the case of the book you mentioned, A Time to Build, which tries to think about the, 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 the reasons for the very widespread loss of confidence in institutions in America. And one of the conclusions it comes to is that we've been losing faith in institutions in part because a lot of people within many of our core institutions have come to think of them as not so much molds that ought to shape their character and behavior, but as platforms for them to perform on, as stages to stand on and be seen in the theater of our culture war. And I do think, unfortunately, that we have seen that pattern continue in the course of the country's response to this pandemic, where rather than be able to step back from our culture war debates and the intense political combat we'd been engaged in before, um, we've used this period of emergency in many ways uh, to, uh, to intensify and elevate those debates. You've seen some professions, including the public health profession, um, politicize themselves and use the platforms they have uh, to advance culture war messages or political ideas rather than to show the country what professionalism looks like in an emergency. I think we've seen something like that in the press as well. I think we've continued to see it in our politics where a lot of politicians, rather than allow their institutional obligations and responsibilities to form them, have instead used those institutions as platforms to stand on and, uh, and, and channel frustration and build their own brand and build their own following. Now look, some of our institutions have done better than I would have imagined. I think we should be grateful for American federalism after the last few months and that on the whole, it has held up better than I would have thought. In some ways, even Congress has stepped up to uh, pass some major relief legislation in a bipartisan way that uh, happened quickly and that I think has been fairly effective on the whole. Um, it could have been better, but it could have been worse. And I think it would have been easy to imagine Congress failing to take that kind of uh, that kind of action. But I, I think that in, in many cases, both in politics and around it, we've seen our institutions have real trouble rising to this challenge. And we've seen that the loss of public trust in institutions has real costs in moments of crisis. And we're, we're seeing that cost exacted now. Okay, John Cochran, I know this is a hobby horse of yours. <laughs> oh, we'll go, well, we're going to have a fun time. Um, I mean, the loss of trust is in many ways well-deserved. I, I, I would have been even more uh, depressed. I think what we've seen is the mid and lower levels of our bureaucracy showing off their stunning incompetence. Um, being able to handle a pandemic, a flu-like pandemic should not be rocket science. And, and they just failed from beginning to end at sort of standard public health, identifying it, testing, tracing. The FDA, uh, the CDC have been uh, forbidding us to, to do basic uh, you know, to, to use tests that can be used in other countries. <clears throat> um, we don't have a, 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 a even reporting system in place. We can't use the tests we have. We still can't get N95 masks in this country. This isn't about, I mean, everybody loves to blame the president because everything in the uh, United States has gotten focused on presidential politics, but this is just the competence of low level bureaucracies. And of course, in the last couple of months, you know, people have looked again at, at uh, police, our police system and seen that as an institution uh, in great need of reform. Um, police unions like teachers unions seem to be uh, not helping, helping the matter. And perhaps there's hope in this that uh, Americans are now seeing a new kind of complete incompetence in, in sort of basic institutions you trusted to be competent once upon a time and, and perhaps we'll put some attention into reforming them. I would close with just um, 
yeah, I guess it's nice that our Congress has been able to do one thing, shower $5 trillion of newly printed money, right, left, and center, needed or not needed, uh, write checks to every single voter in the country. <laughs> um, but compared to, you know, just uh, the, the ability to collect data and disseminate it on where this crisis is bad and where it isn't. Uh, you know, we're, we're the country that can shower $5 trillion uh, on uh, a, a, a free cash on everybody, but we can't seem to provide masks. Uh, so we're making our own little cloth masks. We're back to 14th century ways of stopping a pandemic. Okay, well, HR, we have uh, beaten up on the easy target of government right now, but Gallup looks at uh, confidence in institutions all across society. I want to read you a few numbers here, gentlemen. Um, Gallup, for example, they measured confidence in religion. These are 1975 numbers I'm going to give you. Public 68% confidence in religion in the United States of America. In 1975, 2019, it fell to 36%. Big business, 34% confidence in 1975, 23% confidence in 2019. The banking system, John Cochran, 60% confidence in 1979, 30% confidence in 2019. The medical system, 80% confidence in 1975, 36% in 2019. Public schools, 62% confidence in 1975, 29% in 2019. HR, there's an outlier called the United States military, and I want to get to that in a few minutes. But we just look at these numbers, and there's just distrust across the board in America. So HR, what do you think is going on here? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, in the military, I know we can't take it for granted. I mean, I, I think that what is, what is useful for us to remember is, is that, that the, the confidence in, in the military as an institution wasn't high during the Vietnam War. That was a reflection of what was going on in our society. It, it was a reflection of the frustrations over, uh, over racism and, and, the, and the racial divisions in, in, our, in our country. Opposition to the Vietnam War, an extremely poorly run uh, war. Uh, and and the, the civil unrest in the 1960s you know, associated with the assassination of, of Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy. I mean, it was a, a difficult period for the country, and that was reflected in the Army, which at the time, as you know, was a, was a draft-based Army. So what, what happened is, is what followed really this crisis within the military broadly, but my institution, the Army in, in particular, was a period of introspection. And Yuval, I'm really glad to, to see you here because your book is tremendous. And, okay. and I, you know, I think what, when I read, you know, your chapter, I think it was um, chapter nine, where you talk about the importance of, of building a meritocratic, meritocratic institutions. I think to get it, this would get at some of John's concerns about incompetency. You know, really war, war is the great auditor of military institutions. I think we're going through a bit of an audit ourselves now with the, 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 these crises associated with, you know, with the pandemic, with the recession associated with the pandemic, with the murder of George Floyd and the aftermath of, of that murder that exposed the, the racial divisions in our society. And I think it might be analogous, Yuval, to the what the U.S. Army did after Vietnam with a period of introspection. There's, a, there's a, an old study that was done at the, at the Army War College in the 70s, a study on, on, on military professionalism within the Army, and, and, a, and a, 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 a cadre of, of Army leaders who had seen the Army evolve uh, from World War II through Vietnam, they led an effort to reform. And it was, as you mentioned in, in, in your book, a period of in introspection that allowed them to, to lay a course for a real renaissance in the army. And this was a renaissance in the areas of, of recruiting and recruiting standards in, in leader development. 
and edu education, an emphasis on moral and ethical leadership, and an emphasis really on building cohesive teams in our army. And this is this is a this is a theme in your in your book as as well uh, is the need for us to connect with each other. I am concerned that we have uphill battle. Right, we've talked a lot on the on this show about the role of social media in pulling us apart. How this interaction that you've all you talk about in your book between you know between the racism and identity politics is is polarizing us. So I, I I'm glad you're here because I do think that we can you know we we can you know, given what John has said really talk uh, I hope uh, about what your vision is for the reform of our institutions and the restoration of confidence and, and trust in them. You know, one of the, I appreciate that very much, Richard. Thank you. It really means a lot. One of the, one of the things that really stands out about the U.S. military over the last uh, 40 years now is its emphasis on being seen and, in fact, on being a formative institution. When, when the Army worked to change its public perception, it didn't just say, we're good at winning wars. It's, it said, we're good at, at forming men and women who will be better Americans. Uh, be all that you can be. The Marines say the few, the proud. They're, none of them are really talking about exactly doing their jobs. We believe the military is good at doing its job, but we also believe the military is good at forming human beings in a certain way. When somebody tells you that they, that they went to Stanford, you might think, well, that's a smart person. He got into Stanford. When somebody tells you they went to West Point, you'd think that's a serious person, not because they got in, but because the military made them that way. We just have that impression of the military. I hope it's true too, but in any case, we have that impression. And that has an enormous amount to do with why public trust has increased in the military, even as it has fallen in just about every other institution where we have much less of a sense that many of our other core institutions are really in the business of forming people, of shaping them in some way into a professional or into a trustworthy individual. Um, and that kind of, the ethic that's required to be perceived that way, the ethic that's required to really be that way is some of what needs our attention and investment now. And it's got to, and as John says, we've lost trust in our institutions because they've become less trustworthy. I mean, it's not that complicated. Um, and ultimately they have to prove themselves. The contrast here between uh, universities and the military as far as forming individuals. Universities seem to be in the business of uh, whatever political prejudices you come in at age 17, we want you to activate for them uh, as you go on. I, I want to go back to one of your first comments, Yuval, uh, about you know, what's the fundamental problem going on. Part of it is, I think, just the ossification of ever-expanding bureaucracy within many institutions. Uh, the sort of thing that happens to militaries who don't fight wars on occasion, uh, they, they, they get bound up with the rule book. But, but you mentioned the cultural. As I look at it, um, I see, I'm of course an economist, but I see more of the political element. Um, the story that I weave is more that our politics have become more winner take all. So the vital importance of winning the next election is, means you can shove it down their throats. Uh, the vital importance of you know, getting control of the Supreme Court means you can shove it down your throats. And that necessitates politicization uh, of all the institutions. As, as just one example, uh, in today's news, uh, Association of Teachers Unions demanded uh, as, a, as a condition of going back to work, not just uh, that it be COVID safe, but that reparations, universal basic income, canceling rent and mortgage be put into place. Um, 
all of the institutions of civil society seem to have been bent to this political war. Now it's a joint cultural political war. It's, it's almost like the wars of the Reformation. Uh, there's a cultural element, but the cultural element strikes me as subservient to the political one. And we may back, you know, as we look back 500 years and say, my God, they were butchering each other over the interpretation of the, of, you know, what is the host at communion? Uh, perhaps they'll go, but but there there was there was also who's going to get the money. <laughs> uh, so it strikes me a lot of what's going on is simply a, a cultural, religious, almost political, a reflection of a political imperative that every institution of society is now now bent to that political case. And part of it is, and, and then I'll close. I promise. Uh, there's this. I, I forgot who, who mentioned this. This change in America from De Tocqueville's era, when if something was wrong, you create an institution, you you put together a you know a little board of your town and you fix the road. And now we are more devoted to getting management on our side. Um, you know, if people aren't treating each other right, uh, rather than sort of a moral let's uh, you know, promote people less based on race. No, we run to the Supreme Court to shove a national injunction down everybody else's throat. Uh, we're not in the business of creating institutions anymore. We're in the business of taking this extremely powerful federal government, grabbing it and shoving it down other people's throats. To what extent, are, uh, you, you can go back and defend the cultural if you want, but that seems to me like a, a, at least there's a, an incentive to do this that won't just be cured by, hey, people, why don't you calm down? You know, I think part of what happens there, because I, I, I very much agree with that way of, of, of describing the scene. And I think part of what we're seeing is the, the, the flattening of the terrain of our institutional life so that all of our institutions come to serve the same purpose. They're all just stages to stand on and yell about oppression. Maybe, maybe this is a newspaper, maybe that's a university, but they're basically the same thing. They're just a place to stand and prove you're on the right team. And as all different kinds of institutions come to serve that same purpose, they fail to serve their different purposes. They, they fail to fill the particular spaces and niches that they have in our society. And it all becomes this one big culture war. And I do think that part of the reason for that is the, the, the polarization of our actual political sphere where people think about the purpose of politics as making the other side go away rather than as winning something in, in a process of bargaining and compromise. If you think that if you just pull through and win that election, then these guys will go away, then you'll do whatever it takes to get there. If you think they're always going to be there, and the question is, what can we achieve given that we live with different people in a, in a diverse society, you're just going to have a different attitude about what you're trying to do. And I think that's very much reflected in our attitude about institutional formation, where, as you say, Tocqueville has this joke that if you get three Americans together, they'll elect a treasurer. I, I, I think we're much less like that than we used to be. Um, and there's a much greater inclination now to fold your arms and stand around and wait for somebody to show up and fix it for you. And, you know, that, that too is a function of a, a kind of politicization of our expectations. We see everything in the same partisan terms. And that makes it very difficult to think that the problem that's in front of us, maybe it's just our problem. Maybe we have to get together and fix it and figure it out. Well, I think the, the root is the uh, increasing power of the federal government, especially the increasing power of the executive, the increasing power of the administrative agencies, the increasing power of the judiciary to, to, to decide fundamental issues so that getting control of them in one election 
allows you to shove a whole lot more down the other side's throats. I, I don't think your characterization, nobody's folding up their arms and waiting for someone else to do it. The three Americans get together, launch a website and tweet about how evil everybody who disagrees with them is and they're racists or uh, you know whatever the other side says or they're anti-American and anti-patriotic, demonize them, try to get a 51% of the next election and then try to uh, you know use those handles of power to, to shove their agenda down the other side. Right. Well, gentlemen, let me read you some more Gallup numbers here and get your thoughts on this. So Gallup also looked at institutions of government and they looked at three groups. They looked at the Supreme Court, the Congress and the presidency, they looked at the triangles of government. So uh, the Supreme Court numbers, 45% confidence in 1973, 38% confidence in 20, 2019. So less, but not hugely less. Uh, the presidency, 52% confidence in 1975. This would be Gerald Ford post Watergate. 38% in 2019. Maybe not what you would have expected, but now let's look at Congress. 40% confidence in 1975. I, if any of you want to hazard a guess, you're probably going to aim too high. 11% in 2019. Now, Will Rogers made a very good living making fun of Congress. Uh, it was a joke, though, but 11% confidence would speak to genuine animosity toward Congress. So, Yuval, what did Congress do to earn 11% confidence? I think there are a couple of things to say about those numbers. One is that the United States in the middle of the 20th century, coming out of the Second World War and the Depression and a period of intense mobilization, I would argue for all that I care about institutions and love them, that we had too much confidence in institutions in the middle of the 20th century. That in some important ways, those earlier numbers, and especially if you look at those numbers, we don't have those Gallup numbers that are comparable, but if you look at, at, at confidence in institutions in the late 1950s, you had numbers in the 70 and 80% range. And I think that's kind of crazy in a democratic society. And there needed to be some process of liberalization where we regain some sense of skepticism, which I think is, is, is healthy. We've obviously gone too far. And I think Congress has actually earned that mistrust. A lot of the problems that confront our system now, including the excessive power of the courts, including the overreach of the administrative state, seem to me like the result of a willful dereliction of the U.S. Congress, a, a, an intentional chosen weakness on the part of the Congress, which has created a vacuum that has been filled in by judges and sometimes by presidents and often by bureaucrats. And that space needs to be filled by Congress. And Congress is distinctly in our system an institution that is meant to channel disagreement in an ongoing way. Our Congress is not a European parliament where a, you have a majority for a time, it gets to do everything it wants until the public throws it out. Our Congress is designed to channel disagreement in an ongoing way, uh, to compel accommodation and compromise. And the Congress has not worked that way in the last several decades. Uh, for a variety of reasons, the budget process and the committee system and various reforms of how the institution works have all worked to shield members from taking responsibility for hard decisions and therefore to weaken the Congress um, and to pass a law, you know, you'll pass laws that say the secretary shall X, Y, and Z. And then it's the, it's, it's the executive's problem and the judges will come in and clean it up uh, when it gets messy. And so I, you know, I, I, I think I worry about the loss of confidence in a lot of our institutions, but loss of confidence in Congress, it, it has happened for good reason. And Congress needs to reassert itself and can, it has the constitutional authority to do that. What's lacking is the will, and I think it is still lacking. And you're, you're right. Where, where your uh, 
grandstanding claim, I think, is, is most forceful is the individual member of Congress. Yeah. To say, I went, I negotiated a hard bill, we gave up some stuff, we got some stuff, we got to a compromise on, let's say, immigration. Let's take something that has been broken for decades in the U.S. or the tax system. Uh, that doesn't get you reelected. <laughs> you, you have to go be a pure warrior on Fox News or a pure warrior on, 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 on CNN if you want to get reelected. Uh, but if that is the institution where you're supposed to make the hard compromises, construct the durable thing that binds us together because everyone got, got represented as opposed to some sweeping Supreme Court dis decision that just wipes the other half out. Mm -hmm. you know, you've all, you know, you, you, uh, you make this distinction between institutions that are, are performative rather than formative, right? It seems that rather than trying to accomplish things, many, many leaders of these so-called leaders of these institutions now, they just want to be heard. They want their voice heard. They want to perform for an, for an audience. I mean, how, how do you see that transition happening in Congress? Do you think it, it might be possible to highlight those members of Congress who actually are there for formative purposes, who are doing good work? Because I, I, I know many of, of these, these younger members now, uh, who, especially the veterans who have come into Congress, uh, they, they make a pledge to really uh, to try to work in a bipartisan way to, to try to solve problems and make progress. Can you give us a glimmer of hope for uh, for for uh, for reform uh, within yeah. the legislative branch? Yeah, I, look, I think Congress really is a place where that transformation from formative to performative is very powerfully evident, where a lot of the incentives for members are basically to pretend to be outsiders while they're insiders, to stand aside and say, you wouldn't believe what happens in Congress and, you know, sort of sharing the frustration of the TV viewer. And that viewer might stop to think and say, well, I don't know, you are Congress. What is happening in Congress? Uh, I, I, I think the incentives in that direction are extremely powerful now. Some of those are a matter of the kind of electoral logic where members just don't want to take risks, don't want to take hard votes. And all they want to do is show their voters that they share the same frustration those voters have. Um, I do think, though, that there are some institutional reforms that could help change some of those incentives. I think incentives are everything in this respect. I mean, politicians are not less ambitious than they used to be. Madison wasn't wrong about their psychology, but it does seem like Congress doesn't want power, as Madison expected that it would always want power. And I think part of the reason for that is now their ambition is channeled in a much more performative way. And what they want is prominence more than what we would think of traditionally as political power so that changes to the way the budget process is structured, changes to the committee system, some decentralization in Congress that would give individual members something to do and something to show their constituents that they have done for them would make it much easier for members who are actually interested in the legislative work <clears throat> to do that work seriously and to get credit for it. At the moment, if you're not the majority leader of the Senate or the Speaker of the House, there's just not much for you to do in Congress. And it's not that surprising that you spend your time looking for the cameras and that, you know, if you go to a congressional hearing now, it's just a bunch of people producing YouTube clips to use later. There's no, there's no conversation. There's no negotiation. There's no legislation. Um, and, and I do think some of that is a function of a kind of consolidation of power and the leadership that can be reversed and should be reversed. And you know, Congress goes through these periods of, of internal institutional reform every generation or so, and it's time. It's been, it's been too long. I'd like to move you a little bit just in that, because we tend to talk about government a lot, but I'd like to get your views. 
uh, on the institutions of civil society. I mean, I think too many people view our view democracy as a matter of voting. <laughs> and in fact, our uh, you know, we depend so much on these institutions we're talking about, the judiciary that policing over the institutions of government, uh, the bureaucratic institutions, but also the, the almost Tocquevillian institutions of civil society, uh, nonprofits, non-government organizations, even the slightly governments like the Federal Reserve. As a sort of conservative libertarian, uh, I, I'm of course especially sensitive that they all seem to be taken over by the progressive left. Uh, the universities, of course, uh, are, are nothing but and, and it's not just virtue signaling, it's signaling that we're on a political team uh, that is determined, uh, you know, um, it, it, it's, it's considered evil to be Republican is, is every bit as part of it as, as your, you know, your good feelings about the appropriate, uh, appropriate victims of the, of the day. Um, but as I think of it, you know, that it used to be that the ACLU, the Audubon Society, um, you know, Planned Parenthood actually cared about the things they cared about as opposed to being just foaming at the mouth about Trump all the time. Um, but they, but all of those, you know, try to be on a board of an art museum and be a Republican right now. Uh, certainly that I, I watch central banks and central banks are moving headlong into inequality and climate change, uh, or at least were until they took a temporary, uh, um, a temporary tour into printing up money to, to, for COVID, but they'll be back to that. Um, all the institute, all the these are important, and I think most people forget how important the institutions from the local school local school boards have become. Uh, foaming at the mouth about Trump and not about how are we going to get our kids uh, properly educated to educate. But, to but John, they have their own problems. For example, I got an email from the Sierra Club the other day, giving a long explanation about John Muir. I was in Pasadena over the weekend. John Muir High School. There is a fight to kick John Muir off the name of the high school. So these 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 institutions, even something as you know good as environmental institution, they're under attack for various ways. Now it's political correctness, mind you, but still it's an erosive you know problem that's going on with them as well. So so the question, gentlemen, is besides the military, is anything else in America as far as an institution is anything really above the fray right now, or is it is it fair game across the board? I I do think that this kind of politicization where a lot of civil society views itself as existing in a sense to interface with government or with politics rather than seeing itself as in possession of some domain of american life where this is our responsibility and we should think about this rather than how this relates to politics um it, it's hard to even convey that now to people who run small local institutions uh and and like you say i mean the school board in my county in maryland had a big controversy last year about how uh, about what attitude it should have about family separation at the border. Well, okay, but uh, we're not at the border, and you have schools to run, and you know you can do this later. I, I think that sense just is is now very hard to convey to people that it's not all one big war, but that we have some distinct and individual things to do here that we might be able to do as 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 local institutions, as small scale civil society institutions. Um, and, and to do those, it, it might be nice if you allowed people to be overtly Republican or Libertarian and serve on this board. I mean, you, you cannot, you can't be out of that closet in Palo Alto if you want to serve on any, uh, in any uh, uh, pub public forum. You know, I, you know what I detect though, Yuval and, and John and Bill, you know, is, is an untapped 
desire to serve among our young people, right? And and you know, I, they, they are. I think they're they're obviously subjected to social media, all of these forces that we've mentioned, and you've all you cover in your book that kind of pull us apart from each other. But you know, there was recently this National Commission on Public Service that I think has some really good findings. There are organizations and recommendations. There are organizations out there that really don't care what your political leanings are. I mean, I'm thinking of a, a veterans organization named Team Rubicon, and what they are, they're, they're veterans who volunteer in time of crises to go to wherever the floods are happening or to, to help in, in ways that, that allow them to continue to serve in, in ways that, different from what they served in, in the military. Uh, there are uh, there's an organization called the U.S. Civilian Corps now that is trying to figure out how to match the desire to serve with the need to serve, and has actually activated a, a bunch of a, a, a lot of people uh, who are willing to go to the most hard hit uh, COVID areas, you know, in in, in, uh, in in public hospitals that were under resourced, or or to work in nursing homes. These are nurses and respiratory therapists, and matching those willing to move and to and and to do that tough work under tough conditions. To, to the need. So I think it's out there and I just wish we could use the power of our information technology to, to make some of those connections rather than to, to, to be subjective algorithms that pull us apart from each other. Do young people want to serve in a small way to help a community, to help those in need, or do they want to do jihad? Uh, or do they want to basically go out and smite the heathen and uh, and uh, advance our side of the great religious war. I mean, the young people who are out there serving by burning down minority neighborhoods uh, in in the name of social justice, they they don't seem to want to. Well, I mean, obviously, way. They, I mean, they're, I, yeah, they're, I, I, you know, I, I, this is there's a deep there's an impulse in humanity to serve to help your community, which is uh, what what you're pointing out, and it's one of the best things in people. There's also the religious impulse to go out and, and convert to your point of view and to, to get off the face of the earth people who feel differently. And I see a lot of that in, in young people these days. But you know, I think that there is, I, I, I think there's a desire for something more constructive and that we have, uh, the, the demand is there and the supply is not. That a lot of what these younger people confront when they look to do something worthwhile are options that all look like burning down the other side. And uh, I, it does seem to me that that argues for some ethic of institution building. You know, you can look at, at late 19th, early 20th century America, where, where a country that faced some similar problems to ours, urbanization and, uh, and, and mass immigration and a certain kind of growth of government, but also just new sorts of challenges. And eventually, not right away, it went through a very dark political period, but eventually, there was a period of real institution building, new universities, new kinds of, of social and, and youth movements. I think we are not right now in the mode of institution building. We're not thinking that maybe the solution to the, the absences we feel is, is building something in this space that isn't there now. Maybe all of those friends of ours on the right who complain about universities should start a university and see what might be involved in, in making it a worthwhile alternative. That's really what that that's that's how a lot of the 19th century universities, my university, the University of Chicago, but also Stanford and Duke and Johns Hopkins in different ways, all came to be in those times, in, in those moments when there was enormous dissatisfaction with what the old established Ivy League schools were doing, 
but that was channeled into a, a constructive uh, moment of institution building. I think that the frustration is there now, but we've not yet seen that moment. And it's why I think that this is coming to be really a time to build. I mean, I think it's, it, it calls for us to think about what we can start, not only what we can burn down. And that's, that's still yet to begin, it seems to me. You've, uh, you mentioned frustration, so this is a good segue to mention what's ahead 13 weeks from today, and that is the presidential election. We have a choice right now. We have a president of the United States who is doing his best to convince the public that you should not trust in any way the public vote, that it's going to be written with fraud. You can't trust the post office. Well, it's not a very hard push, I guess, not to trust the post office. But just whatever the results are, you can't trust them. The president's opponents would have you believe that the president does not believe in the institution of democracy. If he doesn't want to cancel the election outright or delay it, he's going to have to be dragged physically out of office. So, gentlemen, how are we going to have an election that does not further erode, if not seriously cripple, institutional confidence in democracy? Okay, can I start? Because I'm very worried about this election. Uh, and it's not just Trump, it's on both sides. Um, we have the most important thing about democracies can be incompetent at everything else, but a peaceful transfer of power is the most important thing. And that's, you know, that's what the problem with monarchy was, is you fight a war every 30 years. Um, it's the one that, that you can lose an election and regroup and, and be there four years from now and not lose your property your life, your business. Most of most of the world, you lose an election, you know, you're 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 gone. The, um, so the ability to, to and the ability to even when it's dicey to agree somebody's won, they're legitimate, <clears throat> they're in for four years. <clears throat> it's not. This has been going on a long time. Uh, I, I I learned that Richard Nixon in when he lost in 1960, he arguably had that election stolen from him. But he said, no, I'm not going to demand a recount in Chicago because that would be bad for the country. Can you imagine anyone doing that now? And, and I, I, you put it on Trump, which so I'm going back his history. Um, the, the, the hanging chads from the Bush election, I think, were, there was a, a great part of the left that never acknowledged that George Bush actually did win that election. Uh, I read The New Yorker. They were after him for having stolen the election for at least 15 years, and they've never admitted he really won it. Uh, the, the, and of course, what we've seen now, along with the increasing criminalization of politics, we're doing our politics by investigation, by constant impeachment. Uh, you know, the, the dangers of losing are going to be worse and worse. So I, with that preamble, I worry going into this. <clears throat> Suppose this is a close election. And on both sides, that means we start the recounts. But it's going to be full of mail-in ballots. And Trump will be saying chaos, whatever, and, and, and it's stolen. But the left will be saying, oh, you didn't let in ballots that were postmarked badly that were 14 days old and that were counted three months later and somebody had put a Rex in the wrong place. Uh, all of this winds up in the courts. That, uh, and, and this could just be an unbelievable disaster leading to the, the greatest disaster of all, half the country not accepting the legitimacy of, of what comes afterwards. That's and John, most, and, and John it ends up the, and it ends up the Supreme Court, which is 4-4 with one vacancy. Uh, if it even ends up in the Supreme Court, there's going to be local, uh, national injunctions by federal district courts here, there, and, and the other place. When it ends, there's going to be people out in the streets. It's just going to be total chaos, uh, or it can be. I, the one thing I pray for is a decisive election 
one way or the other. Let, let it be over the day afterwards and we all admit one side, one or the other. That's the most important thing. And that's the thing I'm, I'm most worried about. Not so so you've, you've, all, you've written about this. So I'm going on and on about your op-ed. No, I, I, I very much share that worry and I, I very much share that hope that this is a decisive election one way or another. I would only add that because this will be happening in the middle of a pandemic, there will be much more mail-in voting than we have seen before. And in a lot of states that are just not used to it at all. And we've seen in some primaries now in New York and in Maryland and in a few other states that mail-in voting can take a long time to count. It can, be, it can be a complicated problem when you have to verify signatures and contact people. The way state laws work, which are designed for small numbers of, uh, of, of mailed-in ballots from the military and others, now they're gonna have to deal with millions of people. Um, we may well not have results from a lot of states on election night, even if it's not that close. And what we ought to be doing in preparation for that is preparing the public to see that an election that takes more than a few hours to count is not therefore illegitimate. And of course, we're doing exactly the opposite of that. We're preparing the public to, to assume that the election is illegitimate if it doesn't work in the way that it normally would. I think there are ways to give the states some more time to count and Congress can take steps in that direction. There are ways to prepare technologically and in other ways, election administration, we know what incompetence looks like in a moment of crisis. And we need to be very, very sure that we've done everything we can to make sure that our election administration is not incompetent on election day. I have to tell you at this point, that has not been done. And I'm very concerned about the election. If I may, we, we know that November 7th, an army of lawyers is gonna fan out around the country ready to second guess every signature and smudge. And we have before us, the wonderful, comp the one thing we know the U.S. is incapable of doing is building bureaucratic capacity swiftly. Look at the wonderful confidence at dealing with the COVID epidemic. You know, the, the TSA hasn't yet thought to measure people's temperatures the way the Chinese did about one day after this started. We don't have contact tracers. We don't have tests. We don't have N95 masks back where I started with, you know, building bureaucratic competence and you know people ready to count votes trained in the right place and so forth ahead of time uh that, that's what we need obviously and that's what i'm so despairing that is that the one thing that we're really bad at doing right now somehow hr in the second world war though it was all foobar and snafu uh nonetheless we built things up pretty darn quickly with the uh, emergency in hand right right well you know I think that we, we have an opportunity here, though, to come out of the stronger. I mean, I, I think that you know, we're highlighting all the dangers in advance. We ought to all get to work on this, right? We ought to you know, make sure that, that we have as strong voice as we can on rejecting any kind of orthodoxies, you know, not allowing others to, you know, to, to, uh, you know, to define you know, who we are as a people by, you know, by generation or by political party. You know, I think we have to demand from our from our politicians, you know, an ethos of service, right? Something larger than themselves. You alluded to this with Nixon saying, "Hey, it would be good for the country to uh, to contest the the election," and and uh, we have to demand just better performance. You know, as as you mentioned, John, from the bureaucracy, I think uh, better performance evolved from our from our politicians, so that they are actually focused on less on performing. Uh, and and more on on getting things done uh, on our behalf. So I, I think that you know what we need is 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 more trust, you know, in in you know in who we are as a people and in our institutions. You know, I I was thinking you, know, you guys had me thinking about how really 
we are doing to ourselves what the Russians really hoped to do to us in the 2016 election, right? I, I personally don't believe that the Russians, I don't think they thought Donald Trump could win. I don't think they cared who won. What they were doing is, is, is setting, the, setting the, uh, the, you know, the conditions to pull us apart. You know, it's, it's, it's common knowledge now that, that the Internet Research Agency, the bot and troll traffic associated with the Russian GRU, that traffic went way up after the election because in, in an effort uh, to try to delegitimize the, the, the process. And, and so we, we have to recognize that if we create these weaknesses in our society, if we create a crisis of confidence, there are adversaries who are going to do their best to exploit it. And what they really want to do is they want to crush our confidence in our democratic principles, our institutions, and our, and our processes. We, we have a good so test. While your op-ed is so important, we have to we have to highlight this. But then what we have to we have to do something about it. We have to talk to each other. We have to. It's it's tough in a pandemic, right? But we do have to. You know, we have to do have to have to come together in as, as many fora as we can, um, and and reject the extremes, reject the orthodoxy, reject those who try to define who we are. So uh, so I. I, I, I hope that uh, we can get it done, you know, between now and November. Um, and and we, we should have a, a, you know, a loud voice as we can on this. Most of what we need by November is, is bureaucratic competence. I mean, that's the first line of defense before we the machinery of the American political system has to go in. And, and just as one more example, you know, in about 10 days, schools are supposed to open. And if you want to look at a case of completely unprepared for something we all have known was coming for six months, that I think about defines it. So I began this broadcast by giving you a long list of institutions that have suffered over the past four decades or so. So why don't we wind down this conversation? Let me again list off some of these. I mentioned the presidency, Congress, the Supreme Court, the media, public schools, medical systems, banks, businesses, small and large, organized labor, public schools, religion. Gentlemen, if there's such a thing as a rebuild of institutions in this society, um, creating more confidence of all those institutions, where do you start? Can, can I just, but, so Yuval has written about family and, and I'd like to give him 30 seconds to add that to our list of institutions. Yeah, yeah I mean, look, I, I think that it, at some level this has to start from the bottom up and it does seem to me that we have to see that families are the core institutions of any society and they are where we build our sense of responsibility, of obligation to other people, where we understand the limits of choice, even in a free society. Uh, and I do think that a, a recovery of our commitment to family is where this ought to begin. And at the other end of the, of the spectrum, in thinking about the political system, I think reforms in Congress are essential prerequisites for any other improvements in the functioning of our federal government. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the family, and especially as in the current environment, there are the rates of single parenthood are astronomical, especially among low income minorities. It's not really a racial thing, as, as Charles Murray has shown us with Fishtown. In, in, in sort of low income America, there's a, a woman, several children, men come and go. Children grow up in atrocious public schools, never, young men especially, never see uh, a father figure, a man working. And then we expect at 18 somehow that this is all going to solve itself or, or maybe, you know, from the left, well, we'll just send them a check and, and then, then they'll straighten out. Well, there's a horrible idea. <clears throat> I'm not, I'm, I'm of course, as an economist, partial to the idea that government policy has been a lot of the problem. 
but but I don't see. I mean, that is just the screaming uh, problem of what gets expressed as inequality. I think of it as lack of opportunity. But the way uh, sort of lower income America is stuck. HR. Yeah, I just I really wanted to emphasize just civil society and how we can come together within our communities. You know, I. I see this in the military. You have people, they come from all different backgrounds. They bring with them all different biases and, and maybe prejudices. But when they're together and they're working together on a common, uh, on a common mission, they, they, all that melts away. And, and they, they, they're bound together by that common purpose, bonds of trust and, and affection that grow over time. So I just think, you know, for Americans, what can we do? We can get involved at the local level and, to, and take on a project take on something that is, in Yuval's terms, formative rather than performative and get something done for, for our fellow Americans. So I, I think that you know there are plenty of opportunities to do that. It's tough in a pandemic to do it, but I do think that, that as Yuval said, we have, to, we have to work on this from the bottom up and restore our confidence right, in who we are and what we, what we mean to each other. HR, I don't know what we'd do without you because uh, Yuval, you may not have noticed, HR is always the, you know, he's the optimist and, and he knows we can pull together and get this done. And otherwise, <laughs> otherwise well, the we can't do without it. That's for sure. Yeah. What a balanced ticket. That's interesting. So none of you chose the presidency because I might've thought that you would have said that change begins at the top and filters down, but you're suggesting that change begins at the bottom and filters up. I, I, I guess I just think Congress is the top. I'm a congressional supremacist, and I think the federal government can't work until Congress does. So if, even if we think about top down and not bottom up, I think the presidency is secondary. And even reforming Congress, even reforming Congress is bottom up, right? Because they, yep. Congress will, will respond to social pressure to, to, to change, right? And, and, uh, and that's what we ought to demand. I think the point of institutions is that everybody in this country is focused on the presidency. And if we just elect the one perfect God King to come in, he'll make, he or she will go out and, and, and make everything right. And that's absolutely not how democracy works. So yeah, having, having wonderful, great, competent presidents would be, would be a, a fine thing, but uh, the machinery of democracy depends on the institutions at the bottom. And that's what everybody ignores. <laughs> So Yuval, is it possible to affect change while you're in the middle of a pandemic and people are naturally on edge and people tend to be cynical of what the government is doing and people are just confused by sometimes conflicting advice coming out of their government? Is this, is this a post-pandemic issue we're looking at? Well, maybe, but I think there are ways to use a moment of crisis or emergency like this where it creates certain kinds of possibilities. It, it accelerates certain kinds of changes. We, we're doing a lot more now using various technologies that we might have been much slower to take up before. We can think in more creative ways about how our institutions might function. So certainly, I, I think a lot of this would need to, a lot of this kind of thinking would need to wait until life is back to something more like normal. But we can learn lessons in this pandemic and we can try to change some of our ways of doing things precisely because there are these new pressures um, that force us to try new things. I, I America only reforms in times of crisis. It's a terrible thing to let go to waste, as Rahm Emanuel famously said. Always bring it back to Chicago, don't you, John? <laughs> <laughs> so we, you know, that is something we didn't bring up in this conversation. Is this a uniquely American problem right now, Yuval, or do you look around the globe and see other nations, other societies likewise going through institutional crises? It's, it's certainly not uniquely American. I think in some ways what's uniquely American is the capacity for institution building that is kind of in our DNA so that 
it feels like more of a loss to us because I think we are traditionally very good institution builders, but the kinds of forces that we see, including loss of confidence in institutions, the, the public opinion data on that in Europe is really staggering. Even in countries that we think of as having pretty competent uh, governments in particular, I know less about the data on civil society, but Germans, for example, have very low levels of confidence in their government. And you find that the, the, basically the same trends over the same period of time uh, around the West. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, it's, and it goes beyond the West, right? And of course, you know, I don't want to compare us to, to, you know, to Lebanon, uh, but, but when you look at Lebanon, you can't help but feel fortunate. I mean, that's a, that's a state that is really undergoing an utter collapse. Um, it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy for the security in the region that is already strained by, you know, the, the serial mass murders of the Syrian civil war uh, and violence associated with the rise of, of, of ISIS and the defeat of ISIS. So I, I think the situation is quite dire, you know, across the, the greater Middle East right now. Um, and, and there have been, of course, these series of protests that, across the region from you know, Tehran to Baghdad to, to Lebanon to voice people's dissatisfaction with, with their governments. I think we should feel fortunate that we have institutions to reform, that we do live in a democracy in which we can demand change from our government through the power of our ability to vote. And then, of course, the voice that we have uh, in our free and open society. And um, and I, I think that, that you know, it's, it's time for us to recognize that we're in a crisis, that we, there's a need to reform, but also to, to be encouraged, at least, that we're in a system, a system that was created uh, in a way that, that, we, that we can change and we can improve. So, you know, as I look um, around, it is, especially in economic policy, which is what I follow more, smaller countries have been able to do sensible reforms that we have not been able to do. So as I look, you know, the Nordic countries, uh, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, uh, 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 Holland, New Zealand as well, uh, smaller countries somehow still, the elites have not gotten quite so far distanced from actual people, and they're able to do things like fix their social security system, fix their tax codes, fix the horrendous disincentives of their social program. Sweden used to be socialist and it said, you know, everybody's hanging around taking a check, nobody's working. Uh, we're gonna put in some carrots and some sticks and, and, uh, and, and you know, make this system work. And they were able to do it. Things that are just sitting as, as open wounds on the American uh, political and policy landscape for years. I think one way in which there is a distinctly American sclerosis has to do with a kind of generational pattern in our politics where our leaders really are unusually old in the United States at the moment. It's a very odd situation where we've got a 74-year-old president being challenged by a 78-year-old uh, challenger in the next election. The Speaker of the House is 80. The majority leader of the Senate is 78. That actually is very strange, and it's not the pattern around the West. It's not the pattern around the world. I do think it has something to do with our, with our failure to think about the future and in that sense, at least, there may be some promise in generational change on all sides of our politics over time. Are you sure? I'm going to give you the final thoughts as we run out of time. So the idea of a V-shaped recovery for the economy, what shaped recovery do you see for institutional competence? Do you think, yeah, it, I, you think it's quick? Is it generational? Should we be looking for a couple years? Or is this something that we should be considering for maybe years and decades? I think for years and decades, right? And and I'm just, again, it's it's an imperfect metaphor to look at the at the Renaissance in the army in the post-Vietnam period, but it took a period of introspection and then it took a period of really building momentum behind 
the, the reform movement, you know, and bringing people in to the effort, getting buy-in across the organization and the institution. So I, I think it's going to take time, but I think if we can involve all the American people in this, you know, recognize, hey, the first step is we have a real we have a real crisis here that we have to work on together. I think you know, in the in the military, it's that sense of mission that brings people together. And hey, we have a couple of missions in front of us, right? We have a mission to get through a pandemic, to 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 recover economically from it, and to reform our institutions and restore our faith in our government. So hey, that's plenty of work to do, right? That's job security for all of us in a democracy, and we should all just get to work on it. John, I'll give you the last word, then we got to go. Okay, I just want to say I, I think we're at a deep inflection point with our institutions. Um, the Roman Empire, the Ottoman Empire, the the Ancien Regime. Uh, all these are societies that let their institutions slowly rot and get hidebound, and then we're unable to deal with a, a big crisis. Uh, the three of us seem committed to this low-level fix the institutions of democracy, not just uh, you know fight the next religious war. That isn't breaking out all around us, and and the sort of end of empire feeling is is I think the big danger, and that's a that's a decades one, but that's uh, that's the one to worry about. Hey, gentlemen, we're going to call it a wrap. Uh, Yuval Levin, hey, thanks for joining us today. Really enjoyed it. Thank your you very much. I really appreciate it. Great topic. Stay safe in Washington. Please try to fix the nation's capital. <laughs> I mentioned, by the way, Yuval's book, uh, the title again, and then again, it came out in January. It's on Amazon waiting for you. The title is A Time to Build from Family and Community to Congress and the Campus. Our recommitting to our institutions can revive the American dream. It's there on Amazon. Go get it, folks. So that's it for this week's Goodfellows. On the behalf of the Goodfellows, John Cochran, H.R. McMaster, our guest Yuval Levin, um, the missing Neil Ferguson somewhere in the, in the forest primeval. Uh, we wish you all the best. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll do our best here at the Hoover Institution to help you stay informed. We'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.